Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Eric Wright. I'm going to be the host for your Disco Posse podcast. If you're brand new to the show, thank you for listening. If you're a repeat listener, even more of a thank you. And in fact, one of the things I love about this is we get to explore some really wild and fun topics and meet new friends. This is a really fun show uh, and really interesting stuff. So hang tight for a second and then we'll get to the good stuff. But in the meantime, here's some even better stuff. I want to give a huge shout out to the supporters that actually make this podcast possible. I have to give a shout out to our good friends and sponsors at Veeam Software. I know you run some data center stuff. You run some cloud stuff. Heck, you even run some SaaS stuff. You got Teams, you got Office 365. How do you back that thing up? Well, you don't. If you do, then the way you want to do that is to go to Veeam and check it out. So everything you need for your data prediction need from Veeam software, you can just simply go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. That's vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. You can find out everything they've got for your cloud needs, for your bare metal needs. That's right, metal. Very cool. Anyways, check it out. Go to Veeam. Uh, find out all about them. I'm a huge fan of both them, their community, uh, all the people that work there, uh, and the platform. Most importantly, I'm a user, uh, so I definitely stand by the endorsement. Also, big shout out because it's a time when you have trouble waking up in the morning and you want a tasty way to warm those buds up as you get your day started. You're going to want to check out the most devilishly good flavors at Diabolical Coffee. That's right. I got to give the full disclosure. I'm actually a co-owner of Diabolical Coffee. I've been a longtime fan of really good coffee and really amazing swag. So how about combining both those together? So check it out. If you actually want to uh, go find out more, we just relaunched the store. We got all sorts of neat stuff. Go to diabolicalcoffee.com and you can see the fresh new look, the fresh new taste, and the best swag. And in fact, if you use code DISCOPOSSE at the checkout, you get a little bit of a nice discount. So please do go to diabolicalcoffee.com and use checkout code DISCOPOSSE. All right, let's get to the show. Here's the fun stuff. Eddie Bedrina is the CEO of Eden Green Technology and also the co-founder of BuzzShift. Uh, Eden Green does vertical farming technology. It's This is a really interesting topic. And if you don't already know about vertical farming and what the advantage is, like this is not just your standard, like I'm growing herbs in my living room type of situation. This is really amazing world and life impacting stuff that they're doing there. So I'm pleased to check it out. Eddie is uh, such a fantastic individual. We share a ton of stuff about startups, about running things uh, around creating a good organization, giving back to the world and society. Such a good show. Anyways, this is Eddie Bedrina. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Eddie Bedrina, CEO of Eden Green Technology, and you are listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Now, Eddie, this is really cool because we've got something that is a, a new area for some of the folks that I've, I I haven't had a chance to get into this area on the podcast yet. But uh, my my sister turned me on to this idea of of the vertical farming world and and indoor indoor growth, uh, and then I was lucky enough to be able to get tuned into your story, not just in the what the technology and the product you're doing, but you've got a really kind of neat thing that you brought to the team. So at any rate, 
uh, for folks that are new to you. If you don't mind, just introduce yourself and and sort of lay, lay down what what Eden Green Technology is doing, and then we're going to jump into. I'm excited about the actual the technology is fantastic, and then we'll get into the business side as well. Sure. So Eddie Badrina, uh, CEO of uh, Eden Green Technology, based out of Dallas Fort Worth, down here in the South. And our mission is just to change the way that we are farming produce and feeding people. And we do that through what we term as greenhouse as a service. So we've got patented uh, technology, both hardware and then proprietary software that allows us to shrink about 35 traditional farming acres into an acre and a half greenhouse uh, using vertical farming uh, hydroponic uh, technology. And we're able to do that uh, in such a way that you can place it almost anywhere in the world. You can place it in an urban setting. You can place it in a suburban setting. And it, it, it cuts down on uh, the, the time to market for uh, fresh produce, uh, cutting down from 2,000 miles away from the Salinas Valley in California, which is where a lot of our produce is grown, down to 20 miles or even 200 yards uh, across from a distribution center or a grocery store. So... Uh, we're we're really trying to reimagine uh, what locally grown produce looks like, and do it in a way that's uh, that's accessible and that's consistent, uh, and that's safe for the consumer. And it's interesting that you brought up the idea of, of course, patented technologies and and methods that you're using. Uh, this is literally, you know, breaking new ground in in the way that you're approaching things, and. You know, I was curious as to what this, what brought you to thinking that this is a, a challenge that you know, both can be solved and also really needed to be solved. It was how did the how did the team decide that this is an area that we were? I like also one of my favorite titles I saw was agronomists. Uh, I, I've I've never seen that word before, and I'm going to get you to unpack what that is. It's really cool. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so so there's an origin story to the technology, like any good comic book, any good storyline. There's an origin story, and then there's there's the part where I came along. So. I'll tell you a bit of the origin story and then and then uh, tell you how I came into it. So two brothers from South Africa, uh, guys named Jacques and Eugene Van Buren, uh, they were engineers in, in South Africa and about probably eight to 10 years ago, they had an opportunity just to feed kids in their neighborhood and they were uh, passing out candy. And this young boy came up and uh, they passed out, gave him some candy and he proceeded to stuff his pockets. And they said, hey, slow down there. You know, we, we you don't, you don't need to stuff your pockets. There's more where this came from. And, uh, and he said, well, uh, my, my younger sister's at home and I'm bringing this to her because it's not my day to eat. It's her day to eat. So that really struck a chord with them. And they said, man, this isn't right. Uh, this is not the world that we want to be living in. So they turned their engineering minds to uh, focusing on, hey, how would we how can we grow greens efficiently? How can we grow basic foodstuffs efficiently and uh, effectively that would allow just folks like this little kid to be able to access, have access to uh, nutritious food, right? And thus, thus began the quest uh, to develop this tech. And uh, about eight years later, they uh, brought it to the States uh, just for more opportunity, more capital, more R&D. And uh, about a year after that, in uh, two years after that, in 2000, late 2019, I, I came on board as CEO. 
And I know a lot of your audience uh, is, you know, our founders and and are uh, in the tech space. So I actually came from a Martech background. Uh, I started uh, with my business partner, started a company uh, back in 2010 that was in uh, digital ad tech and digital marketing. Uh, bootstrapped it, so no loans, no lines of credit. Totally bootstrapped. Took it up uh, to the point where we were acquired in 2016, and then. Uh, proceeded to uh, work on it with an employment agreement. And then 11 months later, we were able to buy it back actually uh, under some pretty unique circumstances. Oh, wow. and, and and then we continued to run it. But uh, I had, we had built it so well, even when we bought it back and, and uh, we're able to get it back up to speed in probably 60 days, honestly, that uh, it really afforded me the chance to take a step back and say, hey, what do I want this next chapter of my life to look like? And there are three things that uh, that were on my heart. One was I wanted to run a hardware software company. Uh, I had done professional services, been there, done that, got the M&A t-shirt. And, uh, <laughs> and the second was uh, I, I got to, I, I wanted to build a company uh, that had a unique corporate culture. Uh, there's, a, there's a group out of New York City called Praxis Labs that talks about a redemptive organization, both for-profit and non-profit. So I wanted to build a redemptive organization. And then finally, uh, and the last piece was that uh, I wanted to make a huge social and cultural impact, so much so that for one level of uh, effort, unit of effort on my part, I wanted it to have an outcome of societal or cultural impact. So I kind of sat on that. And then uh, Eden Green came along, this opportunity came along, and it, it checked all three of those boxes. So that's why I joined the team. And, and my role really is to uh, take it to market. It's a great, fantastic technology. Uh, we've spent the last probably year honing in on our uh, on this greenhouse as a service concept and really honing in the, the business model. And now we're taking it to market. And for anybody that didn't like sit for a second in their mind on the phrase, today is not my day to eat, like you don't get much more of an impact than if you can change that for somebody, right? That's heavy. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Like uh, there is a um, there is value creation in all sorts of uh, businesses, uh, and then and then there's some really special special impacted impacting value creation, and that's what that's what uh, Eden Green does, and that's what that's what we're after. And even when we think of you know, the much more uh, sort of the broader market, right? And and being able to make sure that you can do something at a at a mass market or not a mass, but I mean, a larger market scale and audience that allows you to then feed back to a part of the ecosystem. Like, you know, you know, when we move into other parts of the world where they don't have rapid access to internet, they don't have rapid access to electricity, they don't have that, like this is, we take uh, so many things for granted in what you just go in, you know, like we get angry when the power goes out, then you flick on the switch and it doesn't come on because it's habit. Right. And you're right. like, this is BS, you know, like it's, and it's amazing to me that, you know, I've, I've worked with so many folks from around the world and they'll be like, yeah, well, we, you know, we lost, uh, it's lost power for a few days this week. Um, so I took a little extra work to get some stuff done. I'm like, Wow, <laughs> a lot of stuff is very just much is part of their everyday. Right. Uh, so I, I love that what you can do is apl applicable to the 
the broader market, but then allows you to feed back to areas where you can really affect change and, and affect human lives at, at a really, really cool global level. Yeah, you know, you, you, what you just mentioned is so, so key is we, we take, uh, we take a lot for granted. We have so much, um, we have so much faith in our infrastructure and there's so much, uh, I would just say a certainty in our lives, right. Uh, that, that we don't even think about it. Like, so I, I've had a chance to go around the world. Uh, I'm, I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Seed Effect as well that helps with microfinance and savings groups in in southern uh, South Sudan and then northern Uganda, the refugee camps of northern Uganda. And the last time I went over there, it just, man, it was so apparent. Everything that we take for granted, you know, when we, like you said, when we wake up, we expect the lights to turn on. When we wake up, we expect our hit to be dry right uh we expect that uh the air conditioning is still working that the internet's still working you know when we when we get out of our homes we expect that the roads don't have potholes and uh you know and that that they're open right we we stop by the grocery store the gas station we kind of expect that they have things in stock and the minute our uh our expectations are shot at those highest levels man it puts everyone into a tailspin right yeah well the the reality for the rest of the world is there are no expectations like that right they they have so much less to rely on uh, than we do and they operate in a in a world of just flexibility that we honestly don't have uh and so you know being able having that perspective and not being able to take those things for granted really allows you to re-see the world in terms of, hey, how can we we have so many first world problems, but what can we do in our position and our stance to bring technology to to better the world incrementally, right? And or exponentially. And in this case, uh, we really do have a chance to to change that exponentially, and not just around the world, but man, in our backyards. Right, you look at the supply chain here yeah. in the United States. Um, we we our our supply chain is so uh, skewed towards one end. In in that, uh, for the higher end folks, and and you and I are probably perfect examples of this. We we can reasonably expect that uh, if a grocery store doesn't have something, we can drive to two other grocery stores. Uh, we can get an Amazon Prime. We can get a DoorDash. We can get everything at a cost. Uh, when you get to places like South Dallas, when you get to places, you know, then, you know, Detroit, other, other areas, underserved, impoverished uh, uh, parts of town and urban areas, these folks don't have the opportunity, nor the resources, nor the time, honestly, to go to three different grocery stores. They're stuck with the grocery store that they have. They're stuck with the bodega that's on their way home from their second job. and they those in turn don't have access to it's just too expensive to get this type of produce the produce doesn't last as long on their shelf so they're just getting the bottom of the barrel so if we can change that even in our own backyard to provide uh you know jobs you know one of these greenhouses our acre and a half greenhouses provides up to 30 jobs full time like no seasonal harvesting or planting because we have 11 to 13 harvests a year, they're 30 full-time jobs and they can be placed 
in a greenhouse that's right in the middle of their community. Uh, because these underserved areas, ironically, are in some of the most strategic locations in terms of distribution and supply chain. They are just uh, they are just underutilized because of the sort of the, so- the socioeconomic status and the infrastructure surrounding them. So, uh, if you had something which we do that that needs the base level of infrastructure and can be placed and provide jobs and careers. Uh, and then provide a million pounds of produce that's flowing out of these greenhouses, uh, both in terms of distribution to retailers, uh, suppliers, restaurants, uh, as well as you know a chance to have some sort of nonprofit uh, ph- philanthropic aspect to it. Man, it is it is a win 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 for everyone involved. What well, it really does raise an interesting thing, you know, just. Uh, you know, I'm I'm Canadian by birth and, and uh, now a U.S. Uh, working my way to become a, a fully Americanized uh, human. And, you know, my wife is from from the States here. We live in New Jersey. And, right you know, when we look at the geography of those two countries, it's pretty fantastic to see the amount of like sort of open area that's in the middle. And I've driven across both countries mm. multiple times, which uh, I do sometimes just because you want to remind yourself of the breadth and the the hugeness of of what's out there and it really makes i love that kind of like introspective feeling i get as i'm going across and you know i'm like driving through south dakota and and through the dakotas and through all these very very sort of sparse landscapes and you know you get to a town and all of a sudden it hits you like i better gas up because right. like I, this is no longer an, an immediate expectation that allows seven gas stations every three and a half miles on an easy pull off from the highway. And even as simple as that, then, you know, my mind goes to that's me driving through. This is every day for these folks. Right. And like you said, mm-hmm. giving them access to jobs, fresh food, you know, and, and an empowerment feeling, I think, about creating, you know, really generally becoming self-sustaining, which is which is one. There's a, a, a couple of good documentaries that are on this idea of the, the advantage we create by giving people empowerment through self-sustaining, you know, ecosystems and community. It's really, really cool because the knock-on effect to that, that sort of second stage effect is really strong because then they often have people within that group that say, hey, what if we actually increased the size of the farm? What if we did more? What if we actually sold this to other folks that are outside the, all of a sudden they're business folks, right? It's a lemonade stand kind of idea. It's, and it's pretty cool to see that opportunity create itself as you give them that first stage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, there have been studies done in Uganda uh, associated with, uh, you know, these uh, microfinance and savings groups uh, and, and, what they what they have found it's actually uh, it's the Chalmers Center out in Chattanooga, Tennessee that I think did this study. But what they found is that the key uh, the key indicator to people rising up out of poverty is not exactly financial. Uh, it's it's dignity and self respect. When people have dignity, uh, that that is the that is the ultimate solution to, to poverty, and a lot of that dignity comes through, like you mentioned, jobs and jobs that are meaningful, right? 
in these greenhouses and and we you know we, we were as we were talking offline before it it is a nascent technology it's a nascent industry like it's it's going to be this it's the future of farming when you have a job in these greenhouses it's not just a job uh it's a full-time with benefits uh career platform because these greenhouses are going to be around for the long time into the future and so they they when they get a you know when they get a a, a low sort of the the base job here as a technician or a harvester or a planter they can grow into you know being a food safety manager they can grow into being a greenhouse manager into being a production line manager in these greenhouses and not in just in our greenhouses in almost any controlled environment ag you know agriculture uh scenario so we're really not just giving them jobs we're giving them career platforms which empowers them and gives them dignity and respect and man that is that's uh, equally if not as more important of the actual harvests that are coming out of this uh, and and that's why we think the technology uh, in and of itself the the features and the functions are fantastic they're patented they're revolutionary but really it's the platform that is uh, that this technology allows it to have its platform of jobs, this platform of production, and the platform of of locally grown uh, at scale food. That's big, you know, and it's meaningful. You know, it's one of the things I've always thought, and I really appreciated. You know, as Ray Dalio's his book Principles, and one of the core things yes. that he talks about is this idea of like doing meaningful work. And really, and I, I seek this every day, right? It's it's the idea that what can I do that I know has a broader effect than someone on me? And in fact, do mentoring. And one of my, you know, people always ask me, I said, you know, what do you see as success, you know, at the end of, of this period of your life? You know, what do you get through these different phases? And, and I said, my success will be defined by the success I open up for others, not by my own, right? It's mm -hmm. if I can, if I can Powerful. move to, to that and, 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 get and this is where you see these things of like what can i do and you know like you said money i've always sort of struggled with this idea of you know where like traditional charities and then we know about some of the challenges with the cost of managing them and then you get folks that suddenly are in the business of charity not in the in the the gift of charity in Canada, we actually had a recent, you know, a thing that came out was a company called, uh, it was We Day, you know, and uh, and Craig Kielberger, who started off an, an incredible organization and an incredible mm -hmm. story and an incredible goal and real heartfelt mission. But somewhere in the midst of it, at a business layer, they be, you know, I, I don't you know, I don't want to unpack that it was bad or good, but I'll say that they obviously they they ran into difficulty, which then crossed into the area of lobbying, and it was a whole, it was a big situation, and right. suddenly, that beautiful mission got cut down entirely because they effectively had to disband the entire organization. And you know, I hope that yeah. someone comes in and fills that gap. You know, that's, but seeing those roots, you know, and even like you talk at a business layer, right, bootstrapping. That's powerful, right? That you feel, you really feel a sense of ownership, literally and figuratively, you know, in yeah, that, in bootstrapping it. So if you don't mind, talk about the pivot. I love this, the pivot story with uh, where Eden Green was, and it's nicely highlighted on the website, which I'll tell people they should definitely go check it out. Uh, but 
I love this idea. Martech to AgTech. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, really, uh, the, the, the big thing for me was, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, taking a step back and it really was a personal pivot, right? Uh, I think a lot of folks are looking for the next dollar and looking for the next investment. But, you know, as you talk about, uh, you talk about just this, I'd say a larger, more higher layer of, uh, of value creation, right? Value creation for me is not just financial value creation. There's got to be something more for me. So that pivot was really a personal pivot. And uh, that personal pivot revolved around, hey, what, what else could be, I be doing with my time and my talents uh, and my treasure, you know, my money uh, that, that had a larger impact? And so it was a little bit of soul searching on my part uh, to, to come to this conclusion that, hey, there are, uh, I, as an entrepreneur, I love multiple streams of income and, uh, and I appreciated you know, the, the chance that, that, uh, my marketing company was able to provide, but also, uh, there's this thought of, Hey, what can I invest in my time and my resources in that would have a different sort of impact, uh, and be, you know, financially successful as well. So I really, I really do think the pivot for me started with thinking about free market capitalism in a different way and thinking, Hey, what does it really mean to have value creation? Right? Is it just is it surely financial and financial engineering? Uh, is it providing jobs, which is great, or is there something even better, which is providing jobs that uh, that are meaningful? And and to me, that's a, a part of that pivot was really diving into Praxis Labs and kind of their framework and and the, their their thought. I mean, really briefly, their thought is, you know, m most companies are exploitative in that the leaders eat first, uh, in that the um, the employees are treated unfairly, right? And then and then lastly, it's a net negative. Uh, it's deletive to to the community around them. We see those all, uh, all around everywhere, right? Small mom and pop shops to huge corporations. Uh, we also see what are called ethical companies. And ethical companies are where the leaders eat alongside their employees, Right, employees are treated fairly, which is fantastic, uh, and they're a net neutral to uh, to the community around them. Right, they've got, you know, and you see it like a, a, a perfect example of of net neutrality in terms of uh, in terms of impact or in terms of um, in terms of uh, just good that they're doing to uh, to society around them are are carbon tax credits. Right, you you produce so much carbon, but then you buy tax carbon credits, and then it kind of offsets, right? And then you're yeah. just back down to zero. It's a good it's a good ethical company play, right? We think there's a we think there's a third type of company, and that's a redemptive company. And redemptive companies are where the leaders eat last; uh, they're sacrificial. I mean, it's where employees are not just treated fairly, but they're treated treated generously. And, and really blessed and then and then the last is where uh, it's a redemptive positive the company is a redemptive positive uh, influence on the community and society around them and that's what I wanted to build uh, and so the 
pivot for me is understanding what that framework looked like and then going and trying to find a company or creating a company or coming alongside a company in this case that had the, no pun intended, had the seeds there. It just needed to be fully realized and matured. You got uh, you got seeds all over your your past and future here. Which <laughs> right. Is, I, I had to laugh when destined. I saw it. It was destined. When I saw that you were uh, involved with Seed Effect and then heading over to Evergreen, it's like this is just they couldn't uh, you couldn't write this stuff. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, c- couldn't be scripted. Couldn't be scripted any better. So, Seed Effect, your day to day, your personal pivot. I got to think that this is not new. I bet you there was a young Eddie that probably came up with the idea of a good lemonade stand. Not <laughs> only did you come up with a lemonade stand, but I would bet that you invited your you invited your friend over and you had him watch the stand and you gave him 80% of the profit. Right? There's something that feels to me like you've always thought well outside of yourself on what your direct impact is. You know that uh, that is the case. It's a good. Uh, you, you've got a good intuition. It was really born out of my parents. Uh, my, my parents immigrated from the Philippines in 1969, and uh, and they had, man, I, I think my mom had about seventy dollars in her pocket when she came over. My dad had a whopping like a hundred and ten. Right, this is back in 1969, and uh, and, and they proceeded to come over over from the Philippines and make a life for themselves here. And then at the same time, if you can imagine, they spent, they sent 50% of their uh, salary, their paychecks back to the Philippines to support their families. So I grew up in this household of uh, an immense amount of, of give back, uh, an immense amount of, hey, live within your means because there's so much else out there that you could be giving to. Uh, and then And then just a really a posture of, uh, of personal philanthropy and, you know, having grown up in that. And then I had a chance to, I went to Texas A&M, uh, for undergrad and then, and then grad school, but I had a chance to work for president Bush senior in his personal office in Houston, uh, when I was in college. Yeah. it It was a great honor to, to work for him when I was a junior and senior in high school. I mean, in college, but when I worked for him, one of the things that, that is, uh, uh, just instilled as a family legacy public service is a noble calling and and that when you're in a position you shouldn't you shouldn't be ashamed of the position that you're in you shouldn't be ashamed of the wealth that was created either before you or because of you uh, but that you now have an obligation to give back and that becomes primary to your whole existence in society and and the kids in that family are taught from a very early age like hey you're here for a purpose and this purpose is not about you uh it's about it's about serving the public and so uh that really solidified in me just the approach to take uh whether it was in government which i've had a background in government but then in the private sector uh of hey i'm gonna you know, I want to make money. Uh, I, again, I, I'm a big believer in free market capitalism, but that's not the 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 end. The end is, hey, I do this so that uh, I can also live a life par- a parallel path life of public service. Uh, and so, to be able to integrate those two into a company is uh, is just profound for me and and really really meaningful. 
it's it's something that I think the world is always torn when we get into sort of the labeling of things. And it's a really tough one too, because I'm, you know, while of course you know, people would also say Eddie is a rarity, uh, you know, in the way that you are, you know, truly giving and, you know, your approach is really, pro really, it's from the heart and it gives back to many and it's pervasive in everything, in the words you say, even like I, it, it's so funny how it's, it's not something you're making up to like, all right, we're going on a podcast. We're going to sound giving like, no, this is not a press release, Eddie. This is, this is Eddie. And the press release is born of his story. But we get into the problem of when we talk about free market capitalism, of course, right. That's unfortunately the free market has, you know, it's it has free. edges, you know, and, yeah. and it's some free people, by nature, yeah. right? People, <laughs> well, can, people, people are free to choose, you know, how they want to run their companies. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that is a, a that's the double edged sword of free market capitalism. And, and so, you know, the, the, my personal goal is to, uh, is to grow eating green so that it just becomes an example of like, Hey, you can do things differently, right? There is more to value creation than just financial. Uh, and that, uh, that for shareholders, uh, and for end users, there, there really is a benefit to building companies like these. Yeah. And I, I believe that we will see much more luckily with, I'd say like entrepreneurship becoming sort of very centric to the, especially the Americans and the North American story. And, and that's, and I say that I, it's even arrogant to say that, but my sphere of vision and, and, and influence and, and what I take in has seen an incredible growth in this, you know, real people are going back to first principles thinking that are doing real sort of, you know, we're seeing more stuff with bootstrapping, but yet having huge goals and 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 vision and executing that with, you know, putting faith, family, you know, charity, making it part of that whole organization. So it, it's neat to see, and and I imagine it's happening in other parts of the world, of course, as well. Absolutely. Uh, but the it, it takes a while, I think, for the shift to occur, and unfortunately. The sting past, uh, you know, things tends to be stronger in memory than the belief in the future of of what people are attempting to do today. And I, I it also doesn't help that you've got, you know, you've got twenty four seven three sixty five media that needs to get some buzzworthy headlines every second of the day. Right. <laughs> Everything has to be yeah. scathing and you know, and destroys. And like I'm like, how about? Let's talk about really nice, kind stories. You know, people are doing great things. <laughs> this yeah. doesn't make the news, but so and actually, and that's why I wanted to get to this is this idea of your marketing. You know, you're you're in the Martech side of the world, and marketing, and a lot of it is effectively the idea that you can be a, a storyteller. You can emote something, like not just tell it, but literally create an, an emotional response in somebody. And as a leader. It's funny, I'm finding more and more folks that are coming from the background, not with the MBAs, but, you know, other, you know, previous founders, people that are coming from sort of like marketing and sales organizations, they get how to communicate, how to relate. Empathy is part of their day to day. Right. And so it's neat to see, 
you know, that you can come in then to a business, which, you know, I'll, I don't want to say you didn't have a background in, but it, it didn't look like it was an obvious pick. No, it, it wasn't an obvious pick. And, uh, and, and I think the reason that I was able to come on board and, uh, you know, super grateful that, that, uh, the investors and the team brought me on board was because I had stories. Like if you look at, if you look at, uh, just anthropology from the very beginning, people told stories. The, uh, that's one of the differentiators between humans and any other life form is that we have the ability to tell a story, to get out of ourselves to create this narrative that is apart from ourselves, to be able to both recall as well as uh, be aware of that recall uh, stories, and then add and embellish and 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 honestly change our story as well, right? Change our own right. personal narrative. So, uh, as if you look at at humans as storytellers, and one of the distinctives uh, in our species, if you will, then then it just makes sense that storytelling. Uh, is not just the thing that sets us apart, but storytelling is the thing that's going to uh, attract us the most. So uh, I forgot who said it, but he who tells the best story wins is is the is a quote uh, that I that I like to use a lot uh, because you can have better products. We've seen it throughout the throughout the ages. Better products didn't win because they just had worse stories. Right. <laughs> and mediocre products, mediocre products totally take over the market because they have a better narrative. So I think that's a part of it is, uh, you know, and, and for the founders, especially in the tech space too, uh, you know, in our, in our marketing company, we talked a lot about uh, value proposition versus features and benefits. Right. Most founders, especially technical founders want to focus on features and benefits. Oh, but it's got this many switches and it's got this, you know, whatever, and it can do these 15 things. And they have this laundry list of, uh, of features that they want to run down, but no one cares about the features. They're like, okay, what's the, what's in it for me? What's my value prop? And, and the, the better salespeople and marketers and leaders can get to, oh, here's the value prop as I think it, right. But the real empathy is when you can really, really, really understand what is, the value proposition and the emotional response uh, from the end consumer or from the stakeholder. And yeah. that's when you can tell the best story. And it is, it's a beautiful pairing when you can bring that and you get these incredible technologies that can be, you know, God, I hate the phrase game changing, right? Or like, <laughs> but really, truly like zero to one ability to affect things of an exponential effect or even just an incremental effect, but to have a positive effect and to relate that, here's the other side of it, right? And, you know, oh, by the way, this is, you know, we have this problem you know, where you go to the store every day and you have trouble getting whatever. And it's like, you know, so we've actually solved the problem by we make it so that you don't have to. You just tap button on your phone and like whatever, like, and so that allows you to do whatever. And people are like, no, it's funny. Like they, they just lock in immediately like, oh, that totally makes sense versus like, so we've created this company that works with supply chain logistics that uh, through mobile APIs is able to, and like, oh yeah, that's all under there. It's in there. <laughs> Believe me, that's right. how it works. But if you don't get to the why it matters to somebody, they're going to give a crap about how it works <laughs> unless right. there are other 
fantastic nerds like I'm I'm a big nerd inside. So I love the I love getting past the marketing. I'm the guy that says, okay, cool. I got your one liner. Love it. Let's get right to how this thing works because I want to hear what's differentiating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But most people are not, you know, you and me who we know. They're not wired both, that way. Yeah, that's it. And so you really have to relate to them. You have to give them something that's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. You know, I Donald Miller is actually so fantastic at it. He's sort of famous. He's a company called StoryBrand. Oh, yeah, StoryBrand. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when you watch it, you're like, Damn it! How's it is how is it this easy? But it is not easy to like whittle it no. down to this this real true you know one liner. Yeah, his uh, he has an amazing framework uh, to be able to get your story down to the the essence of it, right? And not just the essence of it, but the essence of it in a way that is very meaningful and resonates with with the end with the end user and the audience. So that's, you know, uh, I think that's why and that background and that experience has, has made me just uh, had me well poised to to come into Eden Green and uh, and really tell the story because there's an amazing story as well as the technology, but really tell the story and take it to market. Now, for for folks that have not explored what it is, it's actually a great time to, you know, let's let's actually talk about the technology because I'd love to hear. Because yeah, it's like I said, my sister's gotten into the idea. She says, "Hey, like I live in an apartment now. You know, I've, I've moved around, downsized a bit, decided to get into uh, you know a slightly smaller space. But so I, I have no garden anymore. And so all of a sudden, she's like, right. what do I do? You know, and she started yeah. to explore this concept of you know vertical farming and indoor farming. Because mm -hmm. not only did it give you the you solved the space problem, but you also solved the uh, a growing season problem. I was a landscaper." So I knew I knew precisely when and where I could grow certain things, and all of a sudden, that's off the table when it came to to food production. And and some people start small, of course, it's like spices, and you know you're growing parsley and you grow your own butter sure. lettuce. But then very quickly they're like, ooh, I wonder if I could grow, you know. And it's like it's really neat to see. So let's let's dive into actually kind of where the technology yeah. comes in. So uh, you know, I, I think your your sisters is probably familiar with things like tower garden, which are, you know, these, these home, uh, home vertical garden yeah. hydroponics, right? Th those are great for, uh, for balconies. They're great for patios. Uh, but there, but there are a couple of things missing. One is they're not consistent, right? You can't grow those year round. The weather is just, doesn't make, especially in Canada or even down here in Texas, the, the weather is so there's true four true seasons. And when you have, seasons some plants just don't grow in those seasons right so there's a consistency aspect of it that doesn't allow for call it your normal everyday consumer to really rely on that type of produce and the second one is scalability it's it's great to grow those uh, and have those on balconies uh, but you know no landlord of a multifamily you know multifamily housing is, is going to put every one of those on their balconies as sort of a you know, a benefit, right? Because then yeah. what if people don't want them? What if they don't know how to operate them? What if they don't, I don't know, right? So, what if they uh, grow naughty things in them? <laughs> yes, right, right. What, what if they go off the reservation yeah. uh, and, and grow different things in it? So, uh, but then you've got like community gardens and, and those are fantastic, but those 
can't scale up. They're reliant on volunteers. They're not commercially viable. No one's going to sell those out on the marketplace. So you really run into a scaling problem, right? And you see other folks, uh, other people in the space, they are scaling. I mean, they got 60 acre farms and, you know, or fully enclosed, um, you know, a warehouses. The problem is they're not economically sustainable uh, for, you know, it's a very, 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 very long-term play and they're not economically sustainable. That's the, either the prices are too high, no one can afford them, or uh, they're just not going to be, you know, as a business, I, I just, I have a hard time seeing the end game in that. Yeah. So that's where we come in. We have these, you know, patented vertical 18 foot towers inside of greenhouses uh, that can grow, uh, you know, the, the density per square foot is, is just amazing. Again, a million pounds of leafy greens in an acre and a half of, of, uh, of area. Right. And so where, uh, flat tray greenhouses, which you're seeing a lot of them, that your normal flat tray greenhouses that really means they're grown on flat trays in sort yeah. of this, uh, ebb and flow type system, flat tray greenhouses, uh, that, they, the problem is they require a lot of room, right? So uh, 35 acres of uh, farmland, traditional farmland is equal to about five acres of greenhouse, flat tray greenhouse, which is equal to about only one and a half acres of our greenhouse. Wow. So that's where we're able to really shrink it down and get it to a size that you can put on a city block. And all of a sudden in this city block, it's it's producing over 10 to 10 to 12 to 13 harvests it's producing a million pounds of leafy greens that's like two and a half million servings of salad and so and so people think okay great so what's the cost though what's the environmental cost right and so here's the comparison uh, for a million pounds of leafy greens and a 35 acre farm would have you know, at least seven hundred thousand gallons of water a year a lot of that's wasted too. 700,000 gallons of water a year. And water is the next oil. I mean, it is going to become a hot commodity already is down here in the South. So think about that 700,000 gallons of water from 35 acres of farming land. Our greenhouse only can one of our greenhouses only consumes 90,000 gallons of water a year to produce a million uh, pounds of leafy greens. You're in my houses consume 45,000 gallons of water a year. So in the, in the consumption of two households per year, in terms of water, one of our greenhouses can grow a million pounds of leafy greens. It's a big difference between flushing your toilet a bunch of times and creating literally, you know, food for hundreds, yeah. uh, big, big difference, right? When you think of that effect, it's funny, and you yeah. said like water's the new oil, right? I mean, you. This is the other thing as humans. While we're good at storytelling and listening to stories, what we're not good at is learning from the damn stories. You know, like you watch The Big Short, you know, and you and you go to the background and 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 like Dr. Michael Burry, who was sort of at the center of discovering and betting against what was the market was going, you know, and the war, no mm -hmm. one wanted him to be right. Boy, did they not want him to be right. And right. He, he was right. You know, he used an incredible amount of data. And then immediately after that, all of his focus 
in the past decade has been around water rights and and water access in Mm -hmm. mostly in the united states because it's such a a really really challenged area california is really challenged as far as a couple of good documentaries on that one but i'll say tread carefully when i say it's a good documentary it means compelling to watch doesn't necessarily mean it's based in fact and and not without opinion but it it highlights their there is a story underneath all of this and and yeah uh you know it's very interesting Yeah, the undeniable thread is that water is becoming scarce yeah and and you see this delta and i think that's where we're in the marketplace and it's why it's so needed you see this delta of population growth you see this uh increase in water usage water consumption but then on the other end of that spectrum you have that delta the 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 supply chain continues to stay at this level and the water consumption with farms becomes actually you know runs against that so you're just having this you're having this huge delta of uh availability of water versus with with climate change and just weather patterns volatility right huge snowstorms in the winter some years in the cholera and the rockies that make for great you know uh, great levels of water and high hydraulics in the Colorado River down to the Rio Grande, and then some you, you hardly have any, uh, you know, have hardly any at all snowmelt. Yeah, and so there's just volatility of water availability, and uh, matched up against this increase in water consumption and and population growth, uh, and and you get this man, you you get a delta that's that's only only lessened if you really really focus on water usage uh and and being very very conservative with water and then likewise with that population growth you've got supply chains supply chains are more fragile we've seen it in the in the pandemic uh, that they break down really really easily dependent on whether people can get out and drive dependent on you know whether people can get out and harvest dependent on uh, all sorts of things Uh, and then you've got this uh, you know, by some estimates, you've got a 400% increase in the demand for locally grown foods. That's within 400 miles is how we define locally grown. Yeah. That, that Delta is almost insurmountable uh, unless you have some sort of revolutionary technological change. Yeah. And especially if we look at like as an incremental opportunity, everything has to go right and we all have to do the right things. So there's factors of environment and there's factors of behavior that have to align beautifully to even maintain, let alone gain any kind of thing incrementally. Mm-hmm. And this is why, like I said, I admire that you and the team, it's like you literally have gone back to real true first principles approaches of like, how can we really break the paradigm on this? And and this is, you know, it comes very simply when you look, you say like, don't think about what water is as a, as itself, as a commodity. Think of what water does. That's right. the problem that we're solving. And it's, that's huge. You know, it becomes a, a matter of like, Hey, I, you know, I, I wish I had, you know, I didn't wish I, I had more low flow toilets. That's not why we have low flow toilets. It's because there's bloody almonds growing by the hectare <laughs> that are right. ravaging West Coast water tables, right? Which is affecting every crop, 
and every bit of access, which then mm -hmm. raises prices in the stores, changes people's access to real good food, and that moves them to behaviors, which gets them into packaged food, gets them into things that are more accessible, more cheaper, can be made cheaper. Right. And you literally can shift the way people behave. You know, there's a, a story about somebody who, you know, she decided that she was going to change her company's health by just moving the pop machine or soda machine, as you call it down here in the States, they from one end of the floor to a really inconvenient spot and putting in three water, uh, you know, machines. And over the course of months, just like the attitude and health of the of the staff was increased because no doubt you made a physical change to the environment that uh, modified behaviors and as a result of that that went to the second order effect where they said hey now i'm going to not drink as much soda at home and my kids won't drink as much soda like you really can do those things and that's why like i said when i look at one and a half acres that's not a lot it's a, it's a good size, you know, piece of lands that you can buy for, you know, on, on Zillow. <laughs> right. It goes right. with the house. Yeah. And imagine that you could have that much output. It's pretty amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. So how does it feel, you know, as you now have to think about the the business side of it and weighing growth versus you know sustainability of of your organization and the 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 vision and you know and the ethics you talked about bootstrapping and, and it's a very conscious decision and a challenging one because it's there's low cost capital out there mm -hmm. especially right now uh yeah it's tempting so, right <laughs> yeah absolutely so so my, so my, the marketing company we bootstrapped, uh, Eden Green has been well capitalized, uh, by a group of private investors and, uh, and that has really allowed us the ability to, to, uh, just work out what our business model looks like to be able to R and D and really hone in on this greenhouse as an economic unit. And I, I think yeah. that's one of the, one of the things that is uh, among the differentiators that we have apart from the technology and, and it's, you know, the, the patent on it and just the way that we're, we're growing in microclimates. The, the other differentiator is economic sustainability and these greenhouses we've designed uh, to be economic units unto themselves and profitable economic units at that. So our business model is different. Uh, and, and our business model is really focused on, hey, instead of trying to own all the greenhouses and grow and then just sell it to all the retailers and distributors and have our own label, we're actually taking an opposite approach, an entrepreneurially approach, which is, hey, we want to empower entrepreneur-led investor and groups. We want to empower retailers. We want to empower suppliers and growers. We want to empower nonprofits and municipalities and nation states to own their own greenhouses. And the reason for that is, and we'll help, we'll build it, we'll help manage and oversee and staff and train them. Uh, and then we'll obviously charge a, a, our technology fee. It's and again, greenhouse as a service is the concept. Yeah. But the reason that we want to do that is because we feel there's a flexibility uh, that is 
inherent in this platform so that if you up northeast in a in a uh, a consumer landscape that is really into spinach but down south it's really into kale and collard greens and then in asia it's really into pak choy right yeah you can grow all those things uh in their locality right there's a flexibility of placement uh, geographically, and there's also a flexibility of what you can grow per the consumer landscape, per the consumer demands. Uh, and so to empower folks to be able to own their own greenhouses and be able to do that and then make a profit off of it, well, all of a sudden, again, you're localizing the impact to the entrepreneur, to the workers, and then to the the ultimately the consumers. And that's what we're really interested in. That's what no one else is doing. Uh, they, they are not providing economic units that you can buy and invest in and get a return out of uh, and then have that type of impact. It's uh, It sort of harkens back to the cooperative, right? In the, I mean, the mm-hmm. early, especially out of farming, that was really what, I mean, I'm not sure if it's down in the States or not, but in Canada, we have this it was literally called co-op. Yeah. It was just like- Yeah, we have co-ops. Yep. Yeah, and that was the name of it. it was like, I, just remembered, I remembered going there and we would get feed from there. As you know, mm-hmm. while I lived, I lived an hour north of Toronto, which was like, that's the world changes a lot in an hour of driving, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not as much now that right. area is very, very built up. Uh, but it, it wasn't even a bedroom community for the city. It was, I lived and was born and raised on a farm. And so, yeah, I just knew it was like you, you went in with your neighbors on, on livestock, uh, you know, and you'd, you'd go to a, you have a butcher that you all work together and you go to the co-op for feed. And, and that was this idea of like sort of shared ownership. And, and, and again, that's, I guess it plays into this whole concept of you can create empowerment and people are, are vested, you know, they have real true skin in the game. And so they not only will be invested in creating the future of it, but they can gain the benefits of it, you know, and, and it's pretty cool that you can open that door up for somebody. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, very unique opportunity uh, that, that eating green offers. And and that's why I'm so excited about it. So you literally get to sit on both sides of the world where you're like, you know, hardware and software on one side, you know, using equity to be able to grow an organization, doing fantastic things at an engineering level and at a human, you know, impact level. You've got Bootstrap Martech. You've got. I, I I would love to spend an hour and a half talking about that recapturing the company story. <laughs> I imagine there's a lot in there that I couldn't. I wouldn't want there, to. There's a lot. But that that may be a second podcast. I, that would be. I would love it actually because it is a really. Those are really interesting stories because people don't never, oh, yeah. it's, it's like a chapter in a book and people just like, oh yeah. You know, like when you read like hatching Twitter and you're like, oh, you know, you, oh, yeah, sure. th- no one knew about the first 17 chapters of the bloody book. You know, they just know that like they suddenly knew who Jack Dorsey was. And then it's like, you go yeah. back to the roots and it was, it's over the span of years. It's over the span of incredible changes in the market. And, you know, Steve Jobs, of course, another for sort of a, obviously an amazing story. But it wasn't as though he like, oh, darn, we're, we're having a little bit of financial trouble. Let's bring Steve back and see what he can do. You know, this is like warring nations to get it to come back. So it's, it is a real interesting sort of Phoenix rising story when you can, when you can have that happen. So, but yeah, I'm going to steal you for another, uh, another podcast. Cause I'd love to actually dive into Sounds that good. story. But so, uh, but really the idea that you've, you're acting 
and living in both types of marketplace uh, in, in how you're operating the business. So, you know, that must be very interesting because it's very rare that somebody both can or does, you know, run, you know, two styles of, of, of finance. Yeah, it's, uh, I would say it's, it's been a learning process, you know, along the way. And that's what just, that's what makes entrepreneurs. That's what makes us, that's why we're wired differently, right? We're, we're willing to learn while we're making it up as we go, right? We're, uh, and in most cases we're, we're building a plane while it's already, uh, you know, at, at 350 miles an hour. That's right. right. It's just, <laughs> yeah. that, that's just what we're doing. And, and oh, by the way, you know, as with any large piece of equipment, you're building it with uh, usually the lowest cost subcontractors and, you know, and pricing, right? So, um, so you know, there's just this, that there's a risk reward ratio that I think uh, I'm well aware of. Uh, so, you know, being able to do both of them, you know, really, man, it's a, they are two different styles, both of running a professional services company versus a hardware software company. Yeah. Uh, but then also running, you know, running something bootstrap versus some, running something that is, uh, that is capitalized. And, you know, I think it's, it, it, it I think it speaks to just the amount of adaptability that you have to have, uh, but also the amount of humility that you have to take into a role like that to know enough to know that you don't know right and then to hire a team that is much better at you in certain areas uh to to help you run that and i mean the the stats show like having a co-founder uh of a startup is uh, in, in exponential your ability to be successful and uh and you know my my uh, advice to a lot of the entrepreneurs that come my way and, and, you know, we sit down for a cup of coffee and, uh, they say, man, what, what is the biggest, you know, what is the biggest and most powerful thing I can do, uh, to, to grow and scale this business. And I just, I mean, I simply say, man, list down what, what the most important to the least important job role that you have. And then on a second list, list what you really like to do versus what you hate to do. And then just start hiring to take all those bottom <laughs> bottom level tasks and responsibilities, uh, and and learn to hire uh, better than yourself, and and have a humility about like, you know, my sales guy uh, Harrison, he is light years better at sales than I am. Uh, he's but that's his role, that's his giftedness, right? Yeah. So uh, so that is you know to be able to hire. And to be humble enough to know to hire better than yourself in certain skill sets, all the while knowing there are only certain things that you can do. Um, that that is a key to to growing and scaling a business. Uh, but then it really harkens back to the the overall sort of posture as an entrepreneur, and and you mentioned being able to operate in different uh, areas with different types of finance, but then also, you know. Uh, capitalism versus you know philanthropy and sort of this you know this that mindset and it really comes back to for, for me of focusing on human flourishing if i'm focused on human human flourishing as a business owner as a ceo i'm going to take care of my employees differently 
I'm going to hire differently because I'm going to hire them for a specialty where I know they can flourish. And I'm not going to try to control them or suppress them or have them do it my way because that's not flourishing, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try to run the business in a way that uh, is is uh, acting in the, in the uh, best interests of my, as a fiduciary to my shareholders, but then also helping them understand there's value that happens when we take care of our employees a certain way. Maybe our operating expenses are a little higher, even pre-revenue, right? Uh, but but there's a there's a long-term value creation that happens versus if you cut corners in certain areas here for the sake of financials, you're actually eroding value long-term. Uh, so, th- but you have to have that posture of human flourishing and going after that and thinking you know, thinking larger than yourself, that, uh, that for me at least, uh, has been a, a recipe, uh, and a, a posture for success. Yeah. I wish there was more of you, <laughs> you know, it's, it is, we definitely, I mean, obviously the, the business, especially when you get into, you know, taking on venture capital, you know, they have, they have a goal, right. Which is to get outside oh, yeah. returns on their investments and, God bless them. Yeah. Right, that's that's what they're there for, and and they're there to guide you through that process and and get you to that goal with their money, and so they can see the benefit from it. And their bets are are more wrong than right, just because of the way the market works and the way business works, you know. And I, that's why I think when you talk about humility, it is the ability to sacrifice your own, you know, future on a. I'll bet it's a tough. I don't. I don't like the bet, as a. It's literally not a coin flip, because you're affecting the outcome. You're doing everything you can. You're pouring yourself into creating an outcome. But the statistics are not in anyone's favor as a founder. Right. And yeah, it's a it's a big responsibility. But then when you can see, you know, what you can do, and what you can do for the team you bring with you on that journey. That's where you find serial founders. You don't find serial selfish founders. They become rich once, invest their riches and become richer and richer. Like there's a world of folks that are really succeeding in that area. But you really see like a serial founder doesn't do it by being an asshole. (laughs) Yeah. And then even more rare is somebody really is understanding as and as caring and as empathetic as you're, you are, Eddie, and to be able to bring that and and to look and say, with every decision that I make, who else benefits as a result of this? And is there a way I can scale the benefit, not just the outcome of the dollar, which is really pretty cool to see. Thank you. Thanks for you, saying that. You got to teach this course, Eddie. You got to, <laughs> we need, but, but that's, and I'm interested, you know, before we we wrap, um, you know, how did you feel as you went through school and you met with early founders and you went through the first journey, like now looking back on it, did you feel there was areas and like opportunities for education that prepared you for this real idea of ethical growth and, and, and give back capability? Because I wonder... Like, is it, is it out there and more people just need to get at it? Or do, or do we think it's actually missing in kind of the educational system and the access and that early, those early choices we make? 
I think it's a combination of both. It's out there, but you have to be looking for it, right? You you have to you have to. There's somewhere in uh, in your story where someone pops in the idea of like, hey, this is there's there's value creation here and more than just financial, right? Uh, and and there's a way to to not just be ethical, but to be redemptive, and th- that that is that's a that's a a small voice, but it's out there, right? It's out there. And I was just fortunate enough to have people and organizations and thoughts uh, all along the way that, that helped me kind of open my eyes to the fact that there's, there's a, there's a, an opportunity for human flourishing an opportunity for building and empowering people, an opportunity for giving them dignity and respect and an opportunity for, uh, for free market capitalism uh, to to thrive, uh, all in that in the same setting. Yeah, and and I think it's it's really good that you know we it's out there to be had definitely. And I think as Absolutely. more and more people discover that, and we see more stories, you know, like your own personal story, Eddie, and 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 that of of Eden Green. You know, it's I think we're going to see. This next wave of entrepreneurs are very much going to be rooted in that, or much more than will be, and that I think will have an amplification, hopefully too, as each generation and and each group of founders comes through. It'll be much more bound to not just ethics, but I like how you say this as redemptive. You know, what can we do that's that's really going to create a, a positive human impact? So it's pretty cool, pretty cool. I'm excited about it, and, and like I said, it's thank you. You're your, the technology is really cool, and I, and I love that. I grew up as a kid, and I was actually near one of my one of the most sort of famous people in the little wee tiny village that I grew up in, called Guilford, Ontario. Uh, is Bradford Greenhouses was you know it's a small little town that I was nearby, and um, you know a little fellow that I went to school with, his name was was Frank Ferragini, and he's he's now Frankie Flowers. <laughs> Which is famous on a Toronto, uh, you know, news station. He did he did their weather. Yeah. Actually, a, a media personality. Uh, Frankie's fantastic, but yeah, his you know they did traditional sort of flat greenhousing mostly for just plants. And mm-hmm. so I I was way too in the weeds on knowing exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about those greenhouses. I grew up around a lot of them, and uh, so you know, one and a half acres can create a whole lot of good uh, when it's oh, got yeah. green inside it. And let's get more. Oh, of, yeah. let's get more of those greenhouses out there. Yeah, let's do it. So for folks that want to actually find out more and, and want to connect with you, uh, Eddie, what's the best way to, to get in touch? So uh, go to edengreen.com, uh, edengreen.com. Uh, also on social, it's all uh, at edengreentech. So you know, just add the tech on the end of it for all the social handles, LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and all that. Personally, uh, you can probably find out more about me at badrina.com, which is my last name, B-A-D-R-I-N-A.com. Yeah. Nice. Well, this has been an incredible uh, joy and thank you for sharing your story. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to take you up well, on the, that second story. Uh, it, it's funny that when you, and you say like it, you described, you know, people's lives and you sit in their story and and i've always said like everyone has a story and my hope is that i can uncover it you know it's uh it's yeah. cool to, to meet somebody who has an amazing story all right thank you thanks so much it's a pleasure to be on here hey folks if you're still hanging on which i hope you are oh my goodness that's really cool first of all thank you again 
And make sure you do go check out our sponsors. Go to Veeam. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Find out everything you need for your data friction needs. Check out diabolicalcoffee.com. And in fact, if you want to learn how to better connect with people, I forgot to mention all the things I'm doing with Velocity Closing. So tons of stuff coming up. Enjoy the show. And please click the subscribe button. I hope to hear you again soon.